Let's pray together. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus made this promise. It's a command, it's a challenge, it's a promise, it's a, it's a blessing when he said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And Lord Jesus, that, uh, those words of yours, they are so many things to us. There's an extraordinary promise there, Father. There is great assurance and there's also great challenge, Father. A, a call to a life of obedience, to, to walking in the footsteps of Jesus as he came and walked on this earth and, and showed us the way to have a relationship with you and, and the way to live for your glory, the way you created us to. But Father, everything Jesus said, even in those two verses of Scripture, is all predicated, it's all resting upon one thing, which is the, the truth, the reality that you are the God who has spoken. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine, and Father, we praise you this morning that you are, in fact, not just a God, but the God who has spoken. You have spoken in creation. You have spoken in your word. And through all of the speaking and all of the proclaiming that, that your creation and your word do ultimately, Father, the message is that you have spoken to us. You have created us for a relationship with yourself. And Father, your word assures us, and, and we've come to learn and discover many of us that apart from you, our, Father, our lives are not even anywhere close to complete. In fact, they're not at all what you designed them to be. But when we will hear these words of Jesus and respond to them, when we will hear the message of the gospel and trust it with all of our heart and trust you with all of our heart and then begin to walk in that path of discipleship and, and obedience, joyful obedience to Jesus Christ who loved us enough to die, Father, you promise that you'll show us the way to go. You promise to, to lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. You promise that and so much more. And Father, this morning, all I'm really trying to say is we're grateful Grateful that you are the God who spoke to us. And Father, as we turn now to your word, that revelation you gave, the word that you promise is going to endure forever, that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word, not even a single stroke of it will ever pass away. Father, help us to realize the treasure that we hold in our hands. Help us to, uh, to apprehend just the reality of, of what it is that you've done in revealing yourself to us in your word. And Father, not because I have anything important or significant or compelling to say, but because you have spoken in your word. Father, cause us to be fully attentive to what you want to say to us through the teaching of your word. Father, I know I'm not up to this task. No one ever is to, to stand in a place like this and, and speak from your word as, as if we know exactly what it says and how to apply it. Lord, no, we're all learning what your word says together. And so we plead and we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit that he alone would be our teacher this morning. Father, we invite you to send your spirit right now. Not that you haven't done so already, but I pray that as we have lifted our voices in worship to you, that our hearts have been washed clean, that our minds have been decluttered. And Father, that we're ready for your spirit to work through your word in our lives. Father, we ask your spirit to come and guide us in truth because your word is truth and there's so much there for us. Father, we ask your spirit to come and guard us from error and distraction and misunderstanding. Father, no one wants to leave more, with more questions, more confused than we came. Father, I pray that by the, by the power of your spirit and the teaching of your word, you'll just deliver our hearts from anything that might get in the way. Father, of us hearing from you. But above all else, Father, I pray that as we open your word, as we study it together, as one speaks and many listen, 
Father, that we will ultimately see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we study your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we study your word. And Father, in a little while when we leave, I pray we'll leave rejoicing because we got to spend time in the presence of Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us, who invites us to his feet to sit and to listen because he alone has the words of life. Where else could we possibly go? Father, be glorified in all that is said and done in this time we have together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you are, we'll dismiss for Children's Church, for our boys and girls, uh, whether you're here for the first time or you've been here many times before, it's for our five-year-olds up through our second graders, time for them to get into God's Word as we do the same thing, and we are going to get into God's Word this morning in Psalm 19. I want to invite you to turn right away to Psalm 19 because we're going to read the passage in God's Word in its entirety as we begin this morning. And so I want you to make your way there as we continue these studies in uh, and what it means and what Jesus meant when he called us to be a house of prayer. And we're going to review in just a, a moment here as we get into the text, as we get into the sermon. Uh, but, but one of the things we often hear uh, said, we maybe even say to one another, maybe we even hear the world say to us as believers in Jesus Christ is, is, is to practice what you preach. Uh, to, uh, to be not just, as James says, hearers of the word, but doers only. And so we are now this morning entering into our third week of what I intend to be at least seven weeks of, of talking about prayer and what it means to be a house of prayer. But you know, nobody learns to pray by sitting and listening to sermons. How do we learn to pray? We learn to pray by praying and praying as we have been talking about here together. And so, yes, I know this was already announced, and yes, I realize it probably sounds like a commercial, but we have an opportunity to pray together this week. And many of you know that once a month we have what we call our Fresh Encounter Prayer Gathering. Uh, the next one, we have moved them now to Wednesday evenings, hopefully a convenient time. Many of you, your kids are already at youth group. Your children may be in a, in, in a midweek program somewhere. Uh, but we want to invite you to come out and pray together with us. We are just going to practice on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock over in the Commons prayer room what we've been preaching. What does it mean to pray together, to seek God's face, and then to seek his hand? It's an hour of worship, it's an hour of prayer, and it's an hour, let me just say, that will not be complete without you. So we want to see you there to come and pray with us. We do not allow professional prayers, amateurs only, so don't feel like you have to be like some sort of, uh, at some certain place in your walk in fact, the more honest and transparent we are, the better. So I want to encourage you, just as that was announced earlier, you'll hear it come probably or see it come through the email this week as a reminder, but join us because, again, I can preach about prayer for the next seven years, but if we don't pray, we're not going to grow in this, in this calling, in this privilege of communicating with the Lord. So enough of that commercial. We need to get into God's Word. And we are, as I said, in Psalm 19. And I just want to begin. It's just a, a 14 verses. I want to read it in its entirety uh, to set uh, where we're going to understand, where we're going to be looking and speaking from this morning. So if you have your Bible open, follow along as I read the 19th Psalm, where this is what the Word of God says. David writes, he says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he, God, has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. 
Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them that is by God's word, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I will be blameless and be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, one unwritten rule of personal conversation, and by unwritten rule, I mean one of those things that we don't ever stop and think about, but when we actually pause to realize it, everybody knows it's true. An unwritten rule of personal conversation, of me talking with you, you responding to me, an unwritten rule of personal conversation is that whoever speaks first controls the conversation, at least to an extent. Whoever speaks first directs and many times controls, if not the outcome, but in many cases at least the starting point, the direction, the tenor, the tone of a conversation. Whoever speaks first. First, I mean, just think about it, and, and you know that it's true. Even before a conversation begins, as you and I begin speaking to one another, the way one of us approaches the other to begin the conversation communicates volumes. Are you approaching me briskly or casually? Do you look stern and, and, and as if you have a, a real message on your heart, or is this just friendly conversation? The way you approach sets a tone for the conversation. Facial expression does the same. As you approach me or I approach you, are you smiling? Are you stone-faced? Are you crying? Is your face, is your expression open? Is it closed? It communicates volumes about where this conversation may be going. Physical engagement matters. Again, even before words are spoken, a handshake, an an arm around the shoulder, a pat on the back, keeping maybe perhaps one's distance with no contact whatsoever. Even the way in which a hand is placed on the shoulder communicates things, does it not? I'm your friend. I'm affectionate. No, I'm in charge and I'm pressing down to let you know. Whoever moves first controls or at least directs the, the start of the conversation. And then, of course, the opening line is always a pivotal moment. You know, up in HR, we've been talking. You know where this conversation is going, don't you? Young men, if your girlfriend, your fiance, even your wife approaches you, she says, honey, we need to chat. <laughs> you know that conversation is going somewhere. You probably don't want it to go, but it probably needs to go, right? Opening lines direct the conversation. Whoever speaks first is at least for a time very much in control. What I'm saying is simply this. In conversation, first word matters. What I'm also here to tell you this morning is that the same thing goes for prayer. Whoever speaks first directs, generally speaking, to most extents, 
where the conversation in prayer is headed. You see, over the past couple of weeks, for those of you who may not have been with us and those of you who have been but don't remember what we've studied, we have been talking together from God's word about what Jesus meant in Mark eleven seventeen when he said to his disciples and by implication to us, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Where my people meet, they better be. The expectation is that they will be praying. And what we did right off the bat is we defined a house of prayer, not as a place, a church, a gathering of believers that has prayer meetings every day and night of the week, though that may be the case, but a place, this is our definition of a house of prayer, just so you remember, a house of prayer is a gathering of Christians, any gathering of Christians who meet together because they understand what prayer is and so they do it because they believe in the promise of what prayer does, of the way God works when his people pray. Furthermore, and in far simpler terms, we define the act of prayer itself, spiritual discipline. Uh, in some cases, we refer to it, but we, we, we've defined the act of prayer simply as answering speech. Prayer is, is my response, whether I do so silently aloud, whether I do so alone or in a group, to the God who spoke first to me. Prayer is answering speech. And then last week, what we learned, really, uh, if you boil it all down, was simply this. The the two biggest reasons every Christian should pray, every Christian should take uh, the call to pray seriously, is first and foremost because God is worthy. He's in charge. He deserves our attention. And second, and and on its heels, is because we are needy. We have needs and, and things in our lives that we know only God can handle. But when it comes to the act of prayer itself, all right, we've gathered together, we're in a room, we're sitting in a circle, we're standing together, and the time finally comes to pray, particularly when we are praying together. Remember, the theme of the series is is house of prayer. It's not my prayer life, it's house of prayer. One of the challenges, though, we face when it comes time to pray is, and again, as I said, praying together is we have no idea where to start. I've heard people say that before. I felt that way myself. I'd pray if I knew what to pray about, if I knew where to begin, what God wants to hear from me. Sometimes we simply don't know how to begin. We grapple with questions, particularly in a prayer circle, of of what exactly is it we're supposed to pray about when we get together? How long should each person pray? When have we covered all the bases? What if somebody else goes first and they pray for every request that's been offered? What am I supposed to do at that point? What do I pray about? And And questions go on and on from there. How do we know when we've prayed long enough that God has really heard and he's going to respond? Question after question after question. Those are just a a few of them, but the bottom line is often we don't even know where to start. When is very, at least in my opinion, humorous essay, The Seven People You Meet in a Prayer Circle, (laughs) Christian author, humorist John Acuff suggests that all the power lies in the hand of the one he calls the opener. He says there are seven people you meet in every prayer circle. This is what he says about the, the person he designates the opener. Listen to what he writes. Quote, he says, you might think the closer in a prayer circle has all the power, but don't be misled. The opener is in control. In addition to often choosing the closer, the opener sets the tone for the entire prayer circle. If they go long, people after them will go long. If they add cute little jokes to their prayer, people after them will be casual too. More than that, the opener doesn't have to worry about the closer or anyone else cutting them off. They can pray and then relax, for their job is done in a matter of seconds. And and then he goes on to talk about the other six people, the almoster, the rambler, the cave-in, the gunslinger, the shot blocker, and the closer, but you're going to have to buy his book if you want to hear about those. 
Because I'm here to talk about, or we are talking about, the opener. Where do we begin? Because John Acuff's right. There is a sense in which whoever speaks first, even in prayer, especially in prayer, controls the conversation. What am I saying? Again, first word matters. When it comes to prayer, first word matters. So if, if, as I've been suggesting to you the past couple of Sundays, prayer really is answering speech, here is my premise, here's my starting place really for getting into God's word this morning. Uh, What I would suggest to you, in fact, what I would submit to you, if prayer really is answering speech, then rightfully, if you think about it, as followers of Jesus Christ, God should start the conversation, shouldn't he? If it really is true that prayer is answering speech and whoever speaks first directs the conversation, it seems only right to me that God should get first word. We should find out what's on his heart before we begin pouring out what is on ours. And that is why this morning we are in Psalm 19. A psalm that C.S. Lewis called the greatest in the entire book of Psalms. In fact, C.S. Lewis went on to say that Psalm 19 may be among the greatest lyrics ever composed in human history for what it says about God and, and what it communicates to us about his glory. And the reason we are in Psalm 19 is not necessarily because it isn't, uh, because it's an instructive psalm. David did not write this psalm to instruct us in the same way Paul wrote the book of Philippians or, or, or James wrote his, or Peter wrote their letters. This is not an instructive psalm. It's a psalm of worship and praise. But what I want to show you or suggest to you as we look at it this morning is that what David wrote for us here is in fact instructive, that it has something to teach us about praying and praying together. And specifically what I want to show you before we're done are three big things about prayer that this psalm teaches us. Three big things about prayer that this psalm teaches us, particularly about giving God first word, about letting God start the conversation. And those three things are as follows. Number one, in the first six verses of Psalm 19, David makes it clear in no uncertain terms that God speaks and has in fact spoken to everyone in creation. The first six verses of this psalm tell us that God has in fact spoken and that he has spoken to everyone in creation. You know, you don't need to be an astronomer, you don't need to be a scientist of any kind to recognize that we inhabit, we live in a spectacular universe. I mean, who really hasn't, young or old, at some point in their life, walked outside under a starry night sky, looked up into the heavens, and simply said, wow, (laughs) wow, this is an incredible universe in which we live. Live. And the fact of the matter is this the more we learn about the world and the universe that we inhabit, the more spectacular and fantastic our awareness of it becomes. And David's counsel, the reason I I point that out, bring that to your attention, is because David's counsel in these first six verses is pay attention to what the stars are saying. Pay attention to what the stars are saying and saying to us. Now, understand, I'm not talking about blood moons, I'm not talking about horoscopes or astrological signs of the zodiac, the sort of nonsense like that 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 men and women have created. No, David says, pay attention to the heavens uh, up above us in the sky because those heavens, those stars are telling, look at verse 1, of the glory of God. 
All you have to do is look up at the night sky and see the glory of God being revealed. He says the heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. He says in verse 3, this is a weird verse, at least it comes sort of clunkily into English to us. It says, there is no speech, nor nor are there words, nor is there voice heard. What he's saying is the night sky doesn't speak audibly in the way you speak to me and I speak to you. He says, but you better believe the night sky communicates a message. Something is being said to us that has verse 4 gone out through all the earth. And the utterances the heavens make go to the end of the world. And David goes on to unpack it further from there, but his point in the first few verses of this psalm is that this message, the message of the heavens, is something everyone can hear. The message of creation is something everyone can hear, and you don't need to be a theologian. In fact, I would submit you don't even need to be a Christian to understand it, if you'll take the blinders off and look objectively, because what is the message of the heavens to us? There is a creator. There is a God. There is a creator. There is a God. There is a creator. There is a God. Day to day, night to night, 24-7, 365, just look around at the universe in which we live and you will see there is a creator. There is a God. Furthermore, this creator God, the one who has created the heavens under which we sit, has eternally significant things to say to us. It's not just that he's spoken generally to everyone in creation, though he has done that. But once David grabs our attention in these first six verses, and so he points out, there is a creator, there is a God, he has created it all, he is speaking to us through it. Once he establishes the fact that God has spoken in creation to everyone, here's the second thing this psalm tells us that's relevant to this discussion on prayer, which is this in verses 7 through 11, God speaks to us, that is those who are listening, in his word. He has spoken, number one, to everyone in creation, but he speaks to those who are listening directly to us, and by us I would mean believers in Jesus Christ, in his word. You know, it's crucial to know that when David wrote this psalm, we need to stop sometimes and think about these sort of things in their proper context. When David wrote this particular psalm, the only Bible, so to speak, that he had available to him are what we know as the first five books of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all he had. There were no kings or chronicles or proverbs or prophets because none of that stuff had happened yet. He was the second of many kings who would follow. Uh, from a historical perspective, most of the Bible was yet to be written. All he had were these first five books. Books that we often wrongly, perhaps, or many people dismiss as sort of dusty old religious history. Religious rules and laws and regulations, not relevant, quote-unquote, to people like us in, in the modern world today. But it's those five books. That's exactly and that is all that David had in mind. When in verses 7, 8, and 9, he exclaimed, look again at your Bible, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. Now, as 
students of Scripture, as, as I know many of us are and desire to be, it's tempting to want to go through each of those six stanzas David just gave us there and dissect each and every one for all these spiritual riches that, that clearly and they most definitely contain. But I'm not going to do that this morning. That's a great study. You can do that one on your own. Instead, I simply want to have you look again at those three verses, and I want to give you three sort of broader observations again, because where we're going with this is what does it have to do with prayer? And there are three things I want you to see about these incredible lines in verses 7 through 9. The first one is simply this, and this isn't a profound observation, but it's simply something to be aware of which is this, that each of the terms David uses in verses 7 through 9, law, testimony, precepts, commandment, down at the end of verse 9, the judgments of the Lord as well, all of those terms that David employs are, are words that actually are in fact found in Genesis through Deuteronomy, the only, again, the only Bible that he had back then, to describe God's written revelation to us, to describe those first five books of scripture. In other words, he's not just pulling terms out of the air in order to sound flowery and beautiful and, and poetic. No, he's saying, I am talking specifically and clearly about God's written revelation to us. So let's make sure, David says, everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about and what I have written here. Second observation. He makes some pretty amazing claims about this word of God, doesn't he? In, in, in referring to and speaking of God's written scriptures, he makes extraordinary claims. Let me just, in, in sort of a real quick fashion, just point out to you some of what he says. He says in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What is he saying? He is saying that the scriptures, the written word that God has given us, can revive an empty and a tired and a broken heart, and take a simple mind, a simplistic mind, and make it wise in the things that matter most. That's what the Word of God can do. Verse 8, he says this, he says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What is he saying? He's saying, among other things, that living according to God's written Word, again, even just the first five books, if that's all we had, puts an inexpressible joy in our hearts instruct us in the way that God wants us to live, the way that he created us to live in the first place. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. What is he saying? He's saying obedience to the word of God is the path to integrity, to true, lasting, enduring integrity. And furthermore, the things God tells us in his word, he says, we can trust because they're never going to falter. They're never going to fail. They're never going to change as everything else in this life does. I don't know about you, I call those extraordinary claims. It says, get into this word of God. These are some of the things that it can do for you. But perhaps the most significant thing that I have noticed in these three verses isn't the terminology and isn't necessarily even the promises as, as rich and as, as really as enticing as they are. I think perhaps the most significant thing about these three verses is a simple little phrase composed of three words that's repeated, at least in our English Bibles, three words, that's repeated six times over in these stanzas. And that is the phrase, the words, of the Lord. Of the Lord. Look again at your Bible. Verse 7, the law 
of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is, is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. What is the point? The point is this. It's not just that God has given us a rule book. These are some wise words to live by, people, and they'll do great things in your life if you obey them. That's true. Live according to to what God's word says. Chances are life is going to go better for you than it is for those who don't. But that's not the point. That's just the blessing. The point, the message David is communicating that ultimately God has not just spoken to us in his word so that we can live happier, healthier, more successful lives. No, God has spoken to us in his word so that we can know the inexpressible blessing of a personal relationship with His word is simply the means by which he communicates his heart to us. He didn't primarily give us his word, again, so that we could live successful, obedient, disciplined lives. That's the outcome. The point is so that we can know him. What did Paul have? So that I may know him. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed. It's about a relationship A living God who has spoken to all in creation, but speaks to his people in his word. Which leads me to this question, and this is really where we're going with all of this this morning. If all of that's true, God has spoken to us all in creation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And he has spoken to us, to his people, in his word. Here's my question Why wouldn't we gladly let him speak first every time? Why would we not gladly, willingly, when we go to prayer, let him go first? Have first word, direct the conversation every single time. And simply be content with the fact, as we've established the past two Sundays, that prayer really is just our response to him. That's the third thing I want you to see here. It's the third thing David says. God's spoken to everyone in creation. He's spoken to us in his word, to anyone who will listen. And what David affirms in the last three verses is prayer is how we respond to the God who, in fact, has spoken first. Because here in verses 12 through 14, having contemplated and and really celebrated just a fraction of who God is, of what he's like, of what makes him so glorious and so wonderful and so spectacular. The God who has spoken to us in creation and in his word, after contemplating all of those things and celebrating them in writing for us, then David, after doing that, presents God with three, I think, very humble, very powerful requests. Verses 12 through 14, here's what David says. And note, if you will, this is just as an aside, but it's kind of an important one. The verse 12 is actually the first time David even mentions himself in the whole song. It's been all God for 11 verses. Now, now that we've addressed you, God, and listened to, to who you are, now, here's what's on my heart. Here's what I have to say. Three requests. Verse 12. David writes, and again, this is one of those sort of clunky translations. Where What's he exactly saying? He says, who can discern his? The idea is his or her own errors. Who can really, here's what David's saying, who can really know what kind of sinner they are deep down inside from God's perspective? Who can discern his or her own errors? And then he says this, Lord, acquit me of hidden faults. Here's request number one. God, 
As I come to you in prayer today, I ask you not to just deal with and forgive the sins I know about, but deal with and forgive the ones that I don't. The things that were inadvertent, I didn't mean to do it. The things that I have excused as not being sin, which really are. Lord, as David would say in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit. Go to the places in my heart that I didn't even know I was sinning against you and bring them to my attention. Acquit me of hidden faults. Because I can't even discern the reality of my own heart. Verse 13, that's request number one. Verse 13 is request number two. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Do not let them rule over me. What's David saying here? Well, he has just said, Lord, go to the places in my heart that I don't ever even get to and deal with the sins that are found there. But then he says this, request number two, Lord, shield me against the arrogant tendency to think I can run the world better than you can. That I can run my life better than, what's a presumptuous sin? That is presuming I can handle it. Lord, here's the stuff you can work on. I got the rest under control. David says, no, no, no. God, don't let me go there. I'm the king. I I have this tendency perhaps especially to go there, but we all do. He says, don't let them rule over me because then I will be blameless and acquitted of great transgression. Request number three in verse 14. Love these words. Some of my favorite in all of scripture. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, may the thoughts of my mind, that is the assumptions I make and the conclusions I jump to, the things I decide before they ever come out of my mouth, as well as the things that I actually say, Father, would my thoughts and my words always pass through the filter of your holy love before I ever latch on to them? Before I jump to that conclusion, before I make that assumption, before I decide this is the way things really are, before I speak anything to anyone, may it be acceptable, Lord, in your sight, because you're my rock and my redeemer. You know what I think? I think those are three pretty good prayer requests. Those are three things that you and I probably, honestly, ought to be praying every day. But you know what else I know? What else I've concluded in in thinking about that? They are also three requests I will almost never make if I'm the one who starts the conversation. This is not where I'm going. I'm going to give him my list. I'm going to give him what's on my heart. These are three things I'm almost never going to pray if I always get first word. Because prayer isn't initiating speech. Prayer is what? Answering speech. It is my response to the God who spoke first. So the very practical lesson. You say, okay, this is fine, interesting, not interesting, helpful, not helpful. What's the point? Here's the point. Here's the lesson where we're going with all this. What does this have to do with being a house of prayer? The conclusion, the conviction, not the conclusion, the conviction to which it's led me is this that we should always begin praying with an open Bible. We should always go to prayer. Again, I I understand, and we talked about that briefly last week. There are moments where we just got to get the prayer out, right? God, help. (laughs) That's fine. But I mean, when we sit down to go to the Lord, we gather together. It's by ourselves or it's in a group. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the place to start is with my Bible open. Why? Because that, as much as anything, ensures God gets what? first word, that God goes first. 
Think back to last week's analogy of seeking God's hand, going to him with our request, which is we're called to do. And seeking God's face, which is worship, which we are also called to do. Those two things. Because what I've concluded just by personal experience, and you don't have to raise your hand if you agree or if you don't, but perhaps you do, is this, that if I, if I begin the conversation in prayer, if I'm the one who's got to get stuff off my chest first, chances are that despite my best intentions, we're going straight to God's hand. <laughs> Why? Because there's stuff I want, <laughs> and there's stuff I need, and there are things that I want God to do. And, and I might get a line or two, God, you're so good, it's so, thanks for waking me up this morning. Now, Lord, here's what's got to happen today, right? I'm going straight to his hand. Why? Because that's how I'm wired because it's what's on my heart. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. God wants to hear, cast our cares upon the Lord. But if we begin praying with our Bibles open, and I don't mean legalistically, and I certainly don't mean uh, superstitiously, but in the sense of what does God's word have to say, then what we're really saying is, Lord, before we get to what's on my heart, what's on yours? What's on your heart? God, what would you have to, to say to me today? And maybe that will help us determine where we need to go from your face to your hands. And while it's possible to do that from almost anywhere in the Scriptures, I'd like to suggest that perhaps the easiest and and maybe the most dynamic place is the Psalms. Why? Because they're prayers. They are prayers of worship, of praise, of complaint, of, of regret, of confession, of the Psalms. And So I'm going to suggest very, very simply, and again, you can do this alone. This is exactly what we do in Fresh Encounter. It's what our Friday morning men's prayer group uh, seeks to do each week as well. Open up, find a psalm, and then ask two, read God's word and ask two questions. Here's the very, okay, you want practical application? Here's the practical application. Read the word and ask two questions. Question number one, what does this tell me about God? What does what I have just read tell me about who he is, of, of what he's like, of how he works, of the things he's done? Who is God? What does it tell me about him? And then question number two, is that after I've perhaps contemplated his character, his power, his personality, his nature, now question number two, how should I respond to that? How will God have me respond now that I've let him initiate the conversation? And this is not complicated. Listen, if I can figure this out, anybody can figure this out because I've struggled in prayer as much as anyone. In fact, I've probably had as many opportunities to fail as anyone in the room because I've tried it so many times. But I'm learning that this is a, a beautiful and, and, and an accessible way to approach God in prayer. Take something as simple as Psalm 23. Just go over a page or two in your Bible to Psalm 23, and I'll show you, I'll try to show you exactly what I mean. Because for many of you, you've read Psalm 23 a million times, Right? You had to memorize it in Awana or Sunday school, or you've read it on the back of some prayer card somewhere, Psalm 23. I get not everybody knows it, but many of you do, and you know it well. And you could recite it back to me, perhaps, if I asked you to. But look at it again with these two questions in mind. What does this psalm say about God? And and then, how do I respond? How does that work? Well, let me just read it, okay? We've got a couple of minutes here. Let me just read it. It's only six verses, and here's what we're going to do. This is class participation time. You have to help me, Okay? I am going to read this psalm, and as I see, and granted, I've read through it a couple times already, but I'm not, I didn't write anything down, but I'm going to tell you as I read through it what I see this psalm telling us about God. And as I do with each one, I'm going to hold up a finger, and you're going to count out loud how many we see, okay? No mumbling aloud. You've got to let me know you're out there. 
All right, so I'll say this is observation number, and you'll give me a one. And two, all right, this is not complicated. We can do this, right? Okay, half of you can do this. That's you, you make up for the other half who can't. Here we go. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does that tell me about God? It tells me that he has a shepherd's heart toward his people. That is observation number Very good. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What is that? He's a God who gives rest. That is observation number two. That's right. He leads me beside quiet waters. He's a God who gives refreshment. That is number He restores my soul. What does that mean? That means when I'm empty and, and, and when I have need, God knows exactly what it takes to revive a weary heart. That's number he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That is, a, that is, he is a God who has a right way to go, and he directs people in it. That is observation number Verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. What does that mean? That means on my very worst day, God does not leave or forsake. That's number what? That's right. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Those are instruments of correction and discipline and, and, and moving along. That is, God knows how to deal with the waywardness of my heart. That's number. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That is a word, a promise of God's protection. That's what? You're getting weak. It's what? There we go. All right. You have anointed my head with oil. In the shepherd-sheep relationship, oil was often not just a sign of consecration, but it was used for healing. To heal a sheep's wounds. God is a healer. That's number. All right. My cup overflows. Verse 6 says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. That is, wherever God's people go, whatever we encounter, whatever we do, his goodness and his love, his mercy, some translations say, never fail. I see actually two observations there. So that is numbers 10 and 11, and finally, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What's that mean? That means someday I'm going home. That's number 12. He is a God who comes to the rescue of his people. What did we just do there? We read six verses and we discovered at least a dozen things about God. And none of them involved a request of any kind. Now, there are things that we can respond to, but what do we do? We just looked at God's word, and we had 12 distinct, that's minimum, observations about who God is and what he's like. Now, imagine if you just started your prayer time there. If you went to God in prayer individually and together, and you just said, Lord, thank you that you are such a good shepherd, that you're not a, a hard-hearted taskmaster. You are a shepherd who loves and cares for me as your sheep. Make it personal. God, thank you for being my shepherd when I didn't know which way to go. I didn't know which path to take. I didn't know which job to accept. I didn't know which school to go. I didn't. And you're my shepherd. Verse 4. You walk me through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, thank you, thank you that, that no matter what comes my way, you're, you're never going to leave. You never forsake. Father, thank you that you didn't leave or forsake when I passed through that valley. Just worship. Who's God? What's he like? I'm responding to him. And, and then after you've, we've spent time together doing that, simply celebrating and savoring who God is, then we can move from his face to his hand with a whole new perspective. This is who he is. This is what he does. Now I can lay my request before him with a whole different attitude, a whole new perspective. How do I respond? Father, as my shepherd, you know I need a job. It says here, I shall not want. Lord, I want, I need, but it says here, you will meet my needs. Father, I hand my needs back to you knowing that you can handle it. 
Lord, verse 4, I am in a season of loss. Father, I'm going through a valley of the valley of the shadow of death. We've all been there and we know what that's like. Father, it says you're never going to leave me or forsake me. Will you, will you assure me of that today? Will you just carry me through the valley today? And then we'll worry about tomorrow when it comes. It's a different way of approaching him because it's in the context of relationship. Look at verse 6. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, this world is a mess. And I think as believers, most of us have gone from lamenting the mess to sometimes fearing the mess. Just make your list of all the things that are wrong, all the things that could go wrong today, tomorrow, next week. All the things. But what's my promise, Lord? Someday I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm just passing through. Father, help me hold on to trust in your promise that someday I am out of here and sustain me in the meantime. And what am I saying? I'm simply saying that with all my heart, I've come to believe that when we give God first word and then we pray in response to what he said to us about himself, about this world, about the things he does and the way he moves, if we, if, by, the, by the time we move from his face to his hand, we will arrive at his hand more in love with him than ever, more trusting of him than ever, more confident in him than ever because we've spent time seeking his face. Don't take my word for it, because this isn't my idea. This is Jesus' idea. John 15, 7, Jesus said this. Listen to what he said, and listen to the, the, the way he said it. Jesus said this in John 15, 7. He said, if you abide in me, that means to remain with me, to hang with me, to walk with me, to stay with me. And here's the key, my words. Not my word, not this great big old book, but my words. The things I have spoken to you, my laws, my precepts, my judgments, my commandments, my promises, my predictions, my principles, the words I have said, if my words, that is means, I have to know, it doesn't mean I just carry around a big Bible and it's my defense against Satan and all the evil of the world, no, I take God's word, I open it up, I read the words, and I, I, I rest in them, and I run to them, and I soak in them, and I listen to them, here's what Jesus said, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you, how could Jesus say that? I ask him for stuff all the time that I don't get. He said, no, no, no. If you abide in my words. What does abiding in Jesus' words do? It changes my desires. It alters my attitude. It transforms, if not the requests themselves, my, my humility and my surrender in bringing them to him. Jesus knows that when our minds and our hearts are washed by the truth of his word, our desires will be elevated, altered, and transformed. The key is this, and it's the big idea. We have to give him first word. Give God first word. And he will handle it from there. Father, I pray that you would take the things of truth spoken here this morning, you would seal them to our hearts Pray you take the things of the flesh that are opinion, that are perspective, let them be forgotten so that we will leave only hearing your voice in our ears and in our spirit and we are committed to walking, praying, communing with you, giving you first word always in Jesus' name, amen.